0: Ladies and gentlemen, Cardinal fans of all ages, welcome to Chris and Coach Beyond the Box Score. I'm Chris Grace. I'll be your host, joined every week by current Wesleyan Athletic Director and former head football coach, Mike Whalen. Each week, Coach and I will interview some of your favorite former Cardinals and find out exactly what they've been up to. Without further ado, it's time to check in with the coach, Mike Whalen. Once again, it's another week. It's another edition of Chris and Coach Beyond the Box score, your only official Wesleyan Athletics podcast. As always, Coach Mike Whalen joins me. And as always, we've got the man behind the scenes. Mike O'Brien is with us. We'll hear from him in just a second. But, Coach, another great episode tonight as, you know, I don't even know what to say. I mean, for a Jets fan to get to interview the man genius, it doesn't get much better than that for me.
1: No, it's, it's uh, we're very fortunate that uh, Eric's been able to make some time for us and excited to do this uh this interview so we can uh you know hear you know all the football side and the broadcasting side and obviously man of many talents brings a, brings a lot to the table so excited to uh, spend some time with Eric.
0: Yeah and, and to be able to interview Eric Mancini you know for me is is obviously extra cool but You know, we're talking about a guy that's achieved all this and is still younger than 50 years old. So, you know, there's a lot more to come from Eric Mangini. But we're going to talk about everything he's done up until this point. We've got some great stories coming up. We're going to talk about him growing up in Hartford. We're going to talk about how he ended up at Wesleyan. We're going to talk about, you know, how he ended up as a head coach in the NFL at 35 years old, which is just absolutely bonkers. But before we do that, we've got to talk to our main man, the producer. Mike O'Brien, tell everybody how they could be a part of our podcast.
1: Yeah, Chris. So we always want to encourage our fans to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, We would love to hear from our fans. We want to hear some feedback, any suggestions on how we can make the podcast better. Um, And you could email us at athletics at wesleyan.edu.
0: Don't forget, when you go on the Apple podcast, make sure that you subscribe and make sure that you leave us a little review because we need all the feedback we could possibly get. But, Coach, that's enough behind-the-scenes stuff. For now, it's time to check in with a man who, last time I checked, he uh, holds the Wesleyan career sacks record. He also, former AFC Coach of the Year, three-time Super Bowl champion as an assistant coach. He's got a lot to talk about, and we're going to not waste any more of your time. Here he is, Eric Mangini. Ladies and gentlemen, it is that time. Chris and coach Beyond the Box Score, Chris Grace, joined as always by the coach, Mike Whalen. And tonight we've got coach times two as we welcome in Wesley in class of 94. He is, man, all sorts of accomplishments, still younger than the age of 50. 2006 AFC Coach of the Year, three time Super Bowl winner as an assistant coach. And by the way, he coached my JETS Jets, Jets, Jets. That's right. Eric Mangini. Oh, and by the way, the all-time Cardinals sack leader as a nose tackle. Got to throw that in. Nice enough to join <laughs> us tonight on Chris and Coach Eric. Welcome to our podcast.
2: It's it's good to be here. I, I wasn't sure if those that record still stood or not. I I, I, I was going to ask Mike off the air. If it doesn't, <laughs> it does
0: tonight. It, if it doesn't, it does tonight, Eric. Because we're rolling with the information that that we're uh, presenting. I, okay, I'm I'm good with that. So. Coach is with us. we got a producer, Mike O'Brien, with us. Eric Mangini, nice enough to give us some time. Eric, before we shift into all the great things you've done in your professional career, we always like to ask everybody, how on earth did you end up at And A lot of people know some of your backstory. I know because I'm from this area. You went to public high school in Hartford, Connecticut. Not a ton of guys that went to Buckley High School end up at a school like Wesley. So tell us kind of how you ended up in Middletown, and, and we'll, and we'll kind of take it from there.
2: Okay, sure. So actually, my brother Kyle went to Wesleyan the four years be- before I got there, and he was he was the, the trailblazer. And I got to go visit him while I was in high school, and, and get got to learn about Wesleyan. I ended up looking at a bunch of schools similar to Wesleyan when I was trying to make that college decision, like Williams, Amherst, Tufts, Bowdoin, you know, that the whole the whole NESCAC crew. Um, but I had such an amazing experience when I was visiting Kyle and I got to see the things that the way that it had impacted him. And and that's, that was my thought process. Plus, I I love the campus. I love the fact that it was far enough away from my house in Hartford, whereas away, but it was close enough to where if I wanted to go back home, I could. So it it checked a, a lot of boxes, you know, from that perspective.
1: So Eric, um, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, thinking about your four years at West, you know, I know you're, you obviously football was a focal point, but also did some wrestling as well. Um, talk to us a little bit about, you know, the, the experience of, of being a student athlete at West and, you know, how that impacted, you know, your, your, your post Wesleyan career. Yeah, I, I
2: loved my, my student athlete experience at West, And when I, but I look back at it, and now I've, I've got a junior in college, or a junior in high school, my, my oldest, freshman high school, so we're actually starting to talk about colleges, and then this year, we're actually talking about a lot with, with the junior, and trying to understand what was what is important to him, and, and for me, I really loved football in high school, and I knew I wanted to play it in college, and I knew I wanted to be able to play it at a high level, but... I didn't want it to, to absorb every aspect of my life. I, I realized that I probably wasn't going to be playing professional football and I had some limitations there. So I wanted to get the greatest possible athletic experience combined with the, the greatest possible academic experience. And to me, that's what, what Wesleyan represented and, and still represents, where, where you can go and, and compete at a, at a high level, have just as rewarding experience as you would if you're playing up levels, but also be able to make your primary focus academics. And, and uh, I, I felt like, like I had that balance there.
0: So Eric, you know, a lot of people know that, you know, you were a head coach in the NFL, but a lot of people don't know that at Wesley and you had a heck of a football career as a nose tackle. Okay. And looking at you now, you're nowhere near probably your playing weight. I, mean, I could tell that just by looking at you <laughs> I, on Zoom. I'm
2: unfortunately more than my playing oh, weight. Oh, <laughs> no way,
0: man. No way. Don't sell yourself short. Don't sell yourself I short. Don't sell yourself short. I wish that was my playing weight. But here's what's so interesting to me, and I saw that when I was researching today, I, I honestly didn't know that you had. I knew you played at and I didn't know you played nose tackle. There are almost no head football coaches that play defensive tackle. Most defensive tackles are kind of sea – Hit ball, tackle ball, and so where did that kind of come from? The analytical side, the the you know the coaching side of things come from well, from someone who who lined up basically over the center and whose job was to kind of disrupt things and and just it, you know it's a pretty simplistic position. It's more complicated than I'm making it seem, but uh, you you just don't see many head coaches that are former nose tackles. So how do you, how do you explain kind of that evolution?
2: Well, here's my thought process. So when I got to Wesleyan, I, I there were um, how many linebackers are like 12 linebackers and five defensive linemen. So I wanted to play right away and I just did the math and I figured, okay, so three of those guys are going to, going to start at least maybe four. I, I can't remember if we, the first year we were three, four, four, three, and, and there weren't very many people ahead of me. So if I got down to that group, I had a much better opportunity to, to start and play right away. And that's what I did. I actually raised my hand, and said I'd like to go play defensive line, and then got down there and and fortunately I had an opportunity to play really early. And after I started playing, I wasn't I wasn't very big initially. I was 205 is what I played at freshman year uh, at nose tackle, and um, just was able to, to win with speed, which, which helped. Speed, wow. which which anybody who knows me would say, you winning with speed at anything is a pretty <laughs> ridiculous comment,
1: but you know, and I, then it, that was one position I could win with speed. And then after Eric, if I'm if I'm correct on this, I, you know, when you graduated, did you did you have an opportunity to, to go overseas and actually coach and continue playing?
2: Yeah. So what happened for me, Mike, is my junior year in college, I went to um, to Melbourne, Australia. Kyle my brother was there as an investment banker and I did a semester abroad and so when I got there he was working all the time I didn't know anybody school wasn't starting for another month and this this girl that he worked with was at a sporting goods store and this guy Stan Long was hitting on her and told her how he coached American football in Australia she went back to the office mentioned it to Kyle Kyle mentioned to me And I went the next day to the sporting goods store and met with Stan Long and said, look, I'm here for a month. I'd love to help you coach this team or or volunteer in some way. So he he said, "Okay, come the next day. We got on this bus, and went out to this this paddock, and we were coaching the Q Colts, which was, you know, it was American college football rules with all Australian players. Um, And it took about five minutes to realize that Stan Long didn't know anything about football. And this was before the internet, so you couldn't back-check. Nobody was Googling (laughs) Stan Long. And, and, you know, he looked like he played football. He sounded like he played football. But we're doing calisthenics for 45 minutes, and there's nothing else going on. And so this team had actually been successful in this league. They realized Stan was not who Stan pretended to be, and they, they fired Stan. And they said, Eric, would you coach this team? I said, I coach this team i i can't coach this team i've never and they're like look just just help us out just help us out so i said okay i'll help you out so my head coach at the time frank hauser i called him up and he would fax me stuff out from wesleyan that i would study and then implement the, the next day and so the, the um the, the the doncaster devils is, is, is the name of the team that that was the first team. They two weeks after I'm named head coach. So I think, okay, I'm done with football in Australia. So I go back, I go to start at Melbourne Uni and all the guys that I played with said, we're starting this new team to call the Q Colts. Just come out and and take a look at it. I say, okay. So I go out and end up coaching that team. And I was a defense coordinator, but really de facto head coach and was having a great experience. But summer came along. I said, look, fellas, I got to go home because I've got to make some money for for school. And they said, well, what do you make for a summer job? And I told them what I'd typically make. They said, okay, we'll pay you to stay and coach this team. I'm like, okay. So I stay and coach this team, and we end up winning the championship that year. We beat a team that had won 36 straight games. So we we win this championship, and I go back to Westland, and now I'm thinking maybe this is – maybe – this would be a good career. Maybe this is something I want to to investigate. So anyways, I I had hurt myself sophomore year, had another year of football left. I took the second semester of um, my senior year off, went back and coached that team. We won the championship again. I came back to Wesleyan, played in the fall, and then decided I was going to try to try football as a career. So I hope that that wasn't too long a story, but that no. it all started with Stan Long, and that's fantastic. You know, who knew? Cool. Who, who knew? Stan Long started your coaching career. He 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 was the guy, and the Q Colts is my first uh, my first head coaching experience, my first championship, and it totally changed my life. I was going to be an investment banker like my brother. I thought that's what what I was going to do after I left Wesleyan, and then suddenly I thought, all right, I want to try something different.
0: Those of you who are just joining us, you might not know this. If you travel over to Melbourne, you're going to see a statue of Rod Laver and just a few (laughs) spots over, you might see Eric Mangini. We are lucky enough to have Eric Mangini on Chris and Coach Beyond the Box Score with Coach Mike Whalen, producer Mike O'Brien, Chris Grace, joined tonight by former Jetson Browns head coach, Wesleyan alum, and all-time, we're sticking to it, all-time Sachs leader, (laughs) Eric Mangini and a former Buckley High School product from nearby Hartford, Connecticut. Coach, that's first of all, I love when we hear something that I'm not expecting. And and I was not expecting that. That's so cool that you kind of got your start over there in Australia and you got the itch. But then at what point in your time at Wesley and was it was it immediately after that that you said to yourself, All right, this is what I'm gonna do. This is what I need to do. I got the kind of I got that feel in my system. I love, you know, telling other people what to do and seeing the response and kind of you know, moving the chess pieces around, or, or was it a little bit longer after you graduated that you kind of figured out that, that coaching was something that you wanted to be a part of?
2: Well, so I actually was done in school mid-year, and I had to try to find a job, and I wanted to figure out, is, is football really the, the right direction to go? So I thought if I could somehow get in the door in the NFL and just be able to see a little bit, learn a little bit about what that process is, because I didn't know anybody that was really coaching at a high level in college football or or pro football and so Kevin Spencer had been my coach uh, the first few years was an offensive assistant for the Browns and I called Kevin up and I said uh, Kevin this is something I'm thinking realistically about about trying to pursue is there any way you get me in the door and he called me back and said I can get you in but it's going to be as a ball boy I said oh okay all right I'll, I'll do that So I go out to Cleveland, and I'm a ball boy for OTAs, which is the spring section, and um, then there's a a time period between that and when training camp starts, and I didn't have any money to go home from Ohio, so I I stayed and I volunteered in the public relations department. Did that, went back to being a ball boy. Now, mind you, I got to tell my mom, I'm $25,000 in debt, but I'm going to go be a ball boy for the Cleveland Bronze, which... I don't know if you know anything about ball boys, but they're fifteen. And I've got this great picture <laughs> of me at twenty-three with all these fifteen-year-olds with ball, you know, with the with the towels around our neck, and
0: it's like Cosmo know, so. Kramer on Seinfeld. Yeah. It's perfect.
2: Yeah, so I go back and um, I I do the uh, the the summer part of of my ball boy jobs of laundry and everything, and I'm about to leave, and the head of the PR department says look, we didn't like our PR interns, but we really liked you when you volunteered during that that space. Would you want to be the PR intern for the season? And I said, yeah, I'll be the public relations intern for the season. So that's how I got to stay through that first year. I got in as a ball boy and became a PR intern. And then while I was a PR intern, I was there all the time because, first of all, I didn't have anywhere to go. And I wanted to be in the building and see as much as I could. And this was before the internet, again, was was as prevalent as it is. And so Bill uh, Belichick at night, when he had extra overflow research projects, would come down to the the PR workroom and say, hey, Eric, can you look at this? Or hey, Eric, can you research this? And that's how I got to know Bill as I started doing projects for him as the PR intern. And so fast forward, we get to the end of the season I actually get the O-line coaching job at Trinity. I go and interview and I'm going to be the O-line coach at Trinity. And just as I'm about to leave, Bill Belichick comes over and says, Hey, do you want to be a coaching assistant? I said, yeah, I would like to be a coaching assistant. And so that's how I ended up getting that, that initial break is ball boy PR intern and then, and then coaching assistant.
1: That's amazing. You know, it's just, uh, you know, Chris and I have talked to, to, to a number of folks and, and, uh, you know, what we love to hear is, you know, is is everyone, everyone looks at, uh, you know, a person's profession and and where they got there and how, you know, not knowing how they got there and not knowing what they had to do, you know, what I love to refer to as the grind. And, you know, especially in, in, you know, it's that way in a lot of different professions. If you're working on Wall Street, it could be, you know, working those 60 to 70 hours, you know, at the desk. You know, if you're working, you know, in your capacity, it could be a ball boy, you know, but but doing something because, you know, hey, you really want to prove yourself. You really want to show people what you can do. And then, you know, it, you know, it works out, you know, you know, Jed Hoyer, you know, talking to us about his experience, you know, you know, he really had no, no baseball experience other than playing, but no inkling. And then all of a sudden they, you know, they were looking for a volunteer, you know, assistant with the Red Sox. And he went and, they were like, "Well, you're older than a lot of these people that you know that that, that you know, traditionally do this." But I just think it, it speaks volume about you know about, about a person's character and, and and what they're willing to do and their conviction in terms of you know the pursuit of something. So uh, that, that, that's that's great to hear. And, and I talk so often, Mike. So we, we
2: were called PhDs, poor, hungry, and driven. <laughs> that or, and and 2020s was another one. 20 years old, making twenty thousand dollars a year. But but even as becoming a head coach or a defensive coordinator or, or whatever time of my life, I did young guys who called me, and I could always tell the ones that were on the right track, and the ones that weren't pretty early, because there were a lot of them that that you know they said, well, I'll do anything that to, to get in. I said, okay, will you work for free? Oh, I don't know, you know, I don't know <laughs> if I'll do that. I said, okay, well, let's say someone asks you to get their car washed or to drop off the laundry, yeah, I mean, you wouldn't have any problem with that oh, that's not really what, what I was thinking about. It's like, look, you you don't get to come in and become the GM or the head coach. That's not <laughs> how this works. You have zero value to the organization. You have nothing to add besides your, your effort and your uh, intelligence and, and your ability to make life easier for the people who are producing at a higher level. And, and your job is to come in and show that you belong and can contribute. And then they'll give you another day to do that. And if you string enough of those days together, eventually they're going to ask you to stay and, and you'll continue to grow. But you come in thinking you're going to start at the top, you got no chance.
0: So, Eric, you know, Coach had just brought up Jed Hoyer. There must be something in the water in Middletown because, you know, when I was talking to Jed, the thing that I took from that conversation, what was so crazy is he became a general manager in his 30s, which is something you just unheard of, Okay. You became an NFL head coach at 35 years old. I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but I'm going to tell you I wish I was 35 years old to be in charge of an organization at 35 years old. Well, put yourself back in that time. Obviously you had you had, you know, gone through all the steps. You were coached at all different levels inside the Patriots and Jets organization. You had you had put in the dirty work. You had done all the things. But do you wish you could go back to the 35-year-old version of you and, and kind of, you know, knowing what you know now back at 35? Because I know what I knew a few years back compared to what I know now. I'm just curious about kind of how, how you would approach things at 35 years old. Because NFL coaches just don't, especially at that time, no NFL coaches were being hired at 35 years old. Now it's become a little bit, you know, you know, you get the Cliff Kingsburys and those kind of guys that get chances. But back then, you were certainly an anomaly.
2: Yeah, it was it was, um, it was an incredible opportunity at a young age and it's interesting one of the guys when I, I met when I was a PhD Mike Tenenbaum, was the assistant GM and he was one of the reasons that I got that opportunity and and you know just going back to, to being in an organization and, and creating some some relationships and, and how they play out and opportunities and things like that but I, I would say that one of the, the things that I talk about a lot with that experience is, Um, I had two very strong football fathers. I had Bill Parcells and I had Bill Belichick. And as a dad now, there's often times when I'm raising my kids where I hear my dad's voice come into the mix and and the things that he says, he said, I say. And that's the same thing that happened with with my football career and, and that opportunity. There's no playbook for becoming head coach. You draw on the experience you had. And for me, I looked at their success and I thought, who am I? to do something different than what these two Hall of Fame Super Bowl winning coaches did. This is the right formula. And and I still believe that I still believe in the in the philosophy that, that we had and, and the approach that we had. I, I'm I'm a firm believer in that. I'd say the greatest lesson I learned though is you can do all of those things. You just gotta make sure you do them in your own voice. And at times I was being too much of, of what I thought I needed to be, as opposed to just being me and doing those things that I believe in the believe in and that I learned. And and authenticity for a leader is is extremely important. Um, you know, unfortunately, with age comes experience, and and with mistakes come experience. But as as new guys get opportunities, and especially young guys, I make sure I always offer that up as as I talk to him, the importance of of, of being authentic in, in your leadership.
0: I think that's a, you know, a, a great way of looking at things. And, and obviously, you know, we all wish that we could go back and do things, you know, whether it's the same or different. But, you know, when I think about you, I think about first and foremost, as a Jets fan, I think about how fired up and how pumped I was. When you guys went in there that first time, I'm not going to mention any names, but they might be playing on an evening, certainly like tonight, um, and took care of business, but I thought it was just so great because you were doing things your own way at a young age, and you and okay, you had you know different mentors in your background, but you certainly were doing things your own way, but where I'm going with this is, what was it like to be 36 years old and have a phone call? say, hey, uh, would you like to do a cameo on The Sopranos? And please, please, because, I mean, you're the only former NFL football coach that was on The Sopranos, and you're certainly the only person that James, the late James Gandolfini talked to personally and called you by a a very specific nickname. Talk about your experience and how you kind of ended up doing that little cameo on The Sopranos.
2: Okay, well, it's actually, it's it's only one of my favorite uh, TV experiences. I had a chance to... um, uh, to be on late night TV, and I actually said I, I don't want to do that. I'd really love to be on Sesame Street with Elmo because my oldest loved Elmo. And they said, "Okay, let me research that." The woman who uh, produced Sesame Street was a big Jess fan too. Nice. So I had a chance to be on with a bunch of the guys with Elmo and bring my son to that, and that was that was incredible. And then you know we it's, it's um, doing the alphabet with Elmo, so that was a that was a great family and a childhood show experience that, that I, I always loved. But with the Sopranos, I love the show, Watched it in new England. And then I'm on a bus. It's in the off season and actually coming back from the golden gloves. We'd just been to Madison square garden. watching the golden gloves with Teddy Atlas and, and a group of us players and coaches have gone to it. And I'm on the bus and I get this call and I forget who the, the person's name said, look, um, I'm so and so from The Sopranos. Would you like to be on the show? I'm like, shut up. Who is this? Like, who? <laughs> come on. Like, who gave you? Who? I just thought it was one of my friends or somebody. And I said, no, 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 no. We. This is so and so from The Sopranos. We'd love for you to be on. And um, you know, and would you be interested? And I said, yeah, of course I would be interested. And um, so. It was real. We went down there. James Gandolfini was a, a diehard Jets fan. I don't know if you knew that. He used to actually have seats right by our, our box and come into the box um, at times. Really wonderful guy. And so I get there, and it's it takes eight hours to shoot that scene. And it was really it was like a role I was born to play. I'm eating in a restaurant. No <laughs> Part. I mean, it was it was it was made for me. Um, <laughs> So, but he, James comes over and he says, you know, in the script, we're supposed to be friends, but we, we can't be friends. I'm like, what does it matter for friends? He said, because people take this show very seriously. I'm Like, come on, it's TV. And he said, Eric, I'm telling you, we don't want to position it this way. I'm like, okay, no problem. So we, we shot that scene and after it aired, we actually got a bunch of, Fan, I don't know if it, I don't know if it's fan mail. We got mail that said they couldn't believe that I would glorify the mob. We couldn't believe that you know I would take part in such a show. So he was James was was one hundred percent right in terms of some reaction to that. But it was it was amazing. I loved the show. Um, to be part
1: of that was really incredible. And Eric, t- talk a little bit about you know obviously you know um, the coaching situation you know, kind of transition to the, to the broadcast, you know, how did, how did that all come about? And, and, you know, how difficult of a transition was that for you? Well, it's interesting. So after I I left the Browns,
2: I was uh, right about 40, I think it was about 10 years ago. And I wanted to, I'd been in the league at that point, almost 20 years. Um, and I wanted to try something different, and I didn't have the greatest reputation um, with the media, and I didn't think that was a very fair reputation either, and so when I had an opportunity to, to work on TV with ESPN, I thought this is going to be a great challenge, and this gives me an opportunity to to change the narrative, and, and it was, I, I grew up watching ESPN. I I like the idea of trying something different, like the idea of getting out of my comfort zone. So I decided to go do that. Um, Did that for a while, had some different chances to to go back in, decided not to take them. And then I got a call from Jim Harbaugh. And Jim said, hey, we come out and take a look at the team, just hang out and, and visit for a little bit. And I said, sure. And I had gotten to know him through a friend of mine, Brad Seely, when they were out in Ohio, it was sort of a, a random connection. So I go out, spend some time with him. And he said, would you think about coming on as an offensive consultant? I thought, okay. So I was going to break down the other team from a defensive perspective, translate it into, into, you know, an offensive lens for our guys and, and, play that role but spend the year on offense and I hadn't done that in since the start of my career and I thought okay I'll, I'll do that so I did that and then the next year Jim asked me to coach a position and I obviously I'd coach a position on defense but I'd never coached an offensive position so I said okay so I coached tight ends for a year and Mike you talk about hard I mean it Hard just from a writing standpoint. When you when you draw plays one way for twenty years and suddenly <laughs> have to flip it, it seems like it might be an easy thing. It's not easy at all. Yeah. And then you get confused midway through. Which you know, am I drawing this offensively, defensively? I mean, I was challenged a lot of different ways. But what I loved about that experience is I could teach the tight ends again from a defense perspective. We were able to study the safeties. We were able to just study the linebackers I can give them the keys I can explain how they were covering them totally different different view for those guys and then the next year I thought we were done Jim got let go and then Jim Tomsula got the job I was actually back in Ohio I had stayed in my apartment was back in Ohio when Jim Tomsula asked me to come back and and coach back on defense again um as as the defensive coordinator so that was a kind of I, and I didn't know if I didn't know if I was ready to get back in right away. I was enjoying ESPN, but the chance to go back in on offense was was really interesting. And when I got out of San Fran, I really wanted to continue to to try some different things. And and FS1 was just starting, so there's a new network. It was a, someone I knew from ESPN was starting, and it was on the West Coast primarily.
1: So that's why I decided to to sign with fs one. And then, I mean, I, I, you know, that experience working on the offensive side, I mean, has to, have, uh, you know, providing analysis and, 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 you know, in your, in your current role, I mean, obviously, you know, you know, football, but I mean, I, I've listened to you numerous times on numerous stations and channels and, and to me, what's, what's always been impressive is that, you know, your, your, um, your ability just to, whether you're talking the quarterback position, when you're talking you know, the free safety, whether you're, you know whatever you're talking, so having that opportunity to be on offense probably better prepared you for that next opportunity in broadcasting.
2: It, it was it was great, and and one of the things I think Bill Belichick does really well, and and first of all, he grows his own coaches, which which is key. But when I started, I started on offense to transition to defense, and then guys that I had working for me. I had um, Josh McDaniels was my assistant in the secondary and Brian Dayball was my assistant in the secondary. And then those guys transitioned over to offense. And so you cross train and, you know, Kirk Ferentz, when I first started out was the old line coach uh, for the Ravens. The first season, of the Ravens, when I went from the bronze to Ravens with, with the team, that's who I worked with. So I had this tremendous offensive line background i spending a year with Kirk French. So then when I was designing blitzes and, and talking about blocking schemes, I could speak with authority because I, I had, I had able to, shoot, to to go through that. I, I, I love that idea for, but for all coaches. Yeah. Uh, that's great. That's great.
0: Eric, it's interesting because, you know, when I was prepping for this, that was one, one of the things I circled was, you know, the fact that you had been an offensive and defensive assistant and that's, You know, that just doesn't happen. Like I said, it's like being a nose tackle and becoming a head coach. It just doesn't happen. So where I'm going with this is you've done a lot of stuff in studio atmospheres. You've done a lot of stuff. I see you, you know, with Colin Cowherd. I see you, you know, jumping in on first take and stuff like that. Do you have any interest in doing uh, a game day color commentary kind of thing? You know, not that you'd be able to, you know, usurp uh, my co-host here on this show because anyone who knows anything (laughs) knows that the coach – you know, sets a standard that's very difficult to top. But do you have any interest in 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 going into color commentary on live games, whether it be college or pro for Fox, or or do you do you strive to kind of go back into coaching in some way, shape, or form?
2: Both really good questions. I i've I've talked about doing some some of the color stuff. That's uh, that's not an easy lift. That there's a lot of work that goes into that. not that i'd be afraid of doing that but i'd want to do it at a really high level if i did it um i think i'd have to take a lot of reps to to get good at it i see some guys who uh call games and are naturals and it's um it's kind of like watching a really good golfer yeah you don't you don't appreciate it until you go play golf yourself and realize you know how they're making something so hard look so easy uh, in terms of coaching, again, uh, I, I I go back and forth with this just because the three boys that I have, one's a junior in high school, one's a freshman in high school, one's in sixth grade, the time that I've been able to spend with them in this role has been pretty amazing, and I feel like once they're off to college, I'm not going to get very much time with them anymore, um, so I actually feel lucky that I had so much experience at a a young age and then have had this opportunity now where the boys are, where they are. Now I'm sure there's plenty of times where they wish I was out of the house more and back to my, you know, coaching lifestyle when they get tired of hearing me talk or coach them. Um, But it's, it's a significant trade-off and and that's what I'm, I
0: I try to balance. And, And just to, sorry, just to follow up, you know, do you have any interest in in going into college? Because you know, looking at your entire tree, most people somewhere along the way have a stop at a college. I didn't see a single stop at any college along your entire coaching, you know, kind of history. Do you have any any interest in kind of diving into that that uh, that realm?
2: Uh, yeah. You know, I I've, I've looked at college different times. You know, the concern is that I've never been in college from a from a hiring standpoint. When I've talked to people is whether or not I'd be able to recruit. Um, you could recruit. You know, with, no, I, I, I feel like I could recruit too. I feel like if I was able to recruit pro-free agents, I could probably do college-free agents. But, but the other part of that, and, and Mike could speak up about this better than anybody else, is recruiting is all-encompassing and time-consuming and mm-hmm. doesn't stop. And And I've been around college programs where we're in the middle of a staff meeting and the head coach gets up and takes a phone call. The defense coordinator gets up and takes a phone call. There's no missed calls in that world. Right. And and to some degree, I would think that that's actually harder and more demanding than a pro schedule where, you know, once you got them, you got them. Right. I mean, Mike, you can – recruiting part is
1: rough, I mean, right? and, and And, you know, for me – you know, one of the biggest things was when I kind of knew it was time for me to move on was when the whole social media, you know, explosion took place. And you know, now whether it's Twitter, or, you know, or you know any of that stuff, Instagram, or you know that stuff became the prevalent way to, to communicate. Like you, you literally you send a, a high school kid today an email and they open it two weeks from now. You know, <laughs> like it's it, it's it's just gone. Like it's just gone. So. You know, but but you're right. No, it's it's uh, recruiting never stops. Our even at the Division three level, our most successful coaches are obviously dynamic recruiters. They they do it 365 days a year. You know, I still one of you know one of probably the best players I ever recruited to Williams. You know, he he came up to Williams, and it was Easter Sunday, and my family was all up in Williamstown, and I just said, yeah went the office for an hour and a half to meet with this kid and you know, I literally left you know the family dinner on Easter Sunday to go do this recruiting pitch to this kid and and to this day this kid was a great player and you know several year all conference defense lineman. Um, and to this day he, he basically says when I walked out of that meeting with you and I knew that you left the family dinner to come meet with me that was a decision that I made, you know, I wanted to come play for you. It's, you know, it's just, it's that kind of, you know, interaction. It's that kind of relationship, that rapport that you have to, you know, because again, you know, people on the outside will always say, oh, well, they're making the decision because of the school and, you know, that type of thing. And at our level, I think probably happens a little bit more, but I also feel that, um, you know, that relationship, that, that, that um, ability to connect, you know, with the kids is, is a huge factor.
2: And if you're you're a mom or dad, do you want to know that your son, is, their daughter is going to go to some place where people care about them and, right. and that the, all the things they told, them, told you during the process are are going to be true? And it's, uh, you know, I, I love the idea of college coaching because just like my high school coach, he played such an important role in my life and my college coach, he played an important role in my life so, when you get to pro football, you know it's it's much more business and less relationships you don't have that that same connection there's connections but it's not as deep i don't think yeah
1: and and so while we're on this topic Eric um you know obviously you know your parents I know you know uh you were you know really important people in your life and and uh obviously your high school coach and um just talk us a little bit about you know the foundation and you know how the whole idea of you know starting the camp at Buckley high school and you know you know the wesley guys myself I've worked it many times and I've just been amazed at you know what a incredible operation it is to you know to have you know you know you know I know you had thousands of kids at you know certain times that would come in from all over the state and even outside the state for a day of free clinics with Pro coaches, high school coaches. So, just tell our listeners a little about that whole, how that whole, you know, thing started.
2: Yeah. So, like I said, my brother and I both went to, to Wesleyan, and the school that we went to was an inner city school and had all the same inner city problems that 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 um, that you hear about. Whether it's uh, my the captain of the wrestling team used to bring his son to practice, and um, the president of the student body graduated pregnant, and there was there's poverty and their their challenges and there and um, I saw a lot of really good kids make bad decisions and and a lot of those decisions were probably related to the fact that they weren't surrounded by many very good opportunities so something that Kyle and I talked about is if we ever had the oppor- uh, an opportunity to, to change that we wanted to and and our foundation is based on Creating opportunities for under-resourced kids, and it could be all different things. The football camp is one component of that. We do mini grants for for teachers. We do scholarships, uh, computer scholarships for seniors entering into into college. And the idea is, how can we allow those kids that we went to school with? How can we create some more opportunities for them to make good decisions? And um, and that's our that's our driving our driving statement. Unfortunately for the last year because of COVID we didn't have the camp. Not sure it's gonna happen again. Mike, you've been so generous over the years in terms of of your participation and and it means a lot. These kids well you know, we have we have a broad range of kids that that come in from all of the state and actually multiple states. But for some of these kids to be able to spend time with with someone like like Mike and then and the chance that maybe they're gonna get seen by Wesleyan or one of the other colleges that are there and, and maybe have an opportunity to be recruited because of that. I mean, even that, that component of it is uh, is an opportunity that, that they may not have had otherwise.
1: And then you, I mean, talk about some of the kids from the state that came through your camp ended up being in the NFL, right? Much of, you know, there's a couple of kids that, that, uh, that came to your camp and then went on to be NFL players, right?
2: Yeah. We, we, we've had uh, quite a few guys who, and, and it's um, my brother-in-law, Harry Bellucci, who's part of the foundation and was actually one of my high school coaches and, and met my sister from, through playing uh, or through me playing football for him. Um, but he's, you know, he, he's had multiple guys, you know, on the Steelers practice squad. He's had um, uh, another player, a lot of guys who, who went to Temple. He's put a lot of guys in, in different um, – Private schools from, from his school, and then created college opportunities. Um, I, I forget the number. I think we're at uh, God, I, I can't remember how many thousand kids have gone through the, the camp at this point. We're 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 quickly approaching 20 years when we when we start getting back on track. And um, some of the kids from our original camp, their kids are now are now coming to the camp, which. A little scary. It goes quick, yeah, doesn't
1: it, Mike? Yeah, that's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And and you know, uh, I, I just remember, you know, you 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 would always kind of uh, it was you know a full day. Get there and there's morning session, and there's lunch, and and then there's an the afternoon session, and you know the breaks before um, you know each opportunity to transition to the next whatever you're going to do. You know, having people that were you know either NFL players, NFL coaches, college coaches having them given them the opportunity to talk to kids about making good decisions. And you know, I just thought it was incredibly impactful, you know, and, and that's like you say, to have for those, some of those kids to have, you know, that type of positive influence in their life, that might be the thing that, that changes a decision down the road that, you know, sets them on a, a better path.
2: Yeah. And, and, and for them, some of the, one of my favorite speakers, and, and you've heard him speak, Mike is Brian Cox, who's from East yeah. St. Louis and, Hard as nails, had a tough upbringing, and and he speaks in a way that's very relatable, very honest, and um, and very impactful because uh, he's there. Nobody gets paid to come to the camp. Everybody volunteers their time. Everybody pays their own flights and hotels, and a lot of people um, spend a significant amount of time traveling to it, and it's just to to hear. Brian talk about why it's important for him to be there and the people that helped him and allowed him to be successful and how all the football stuff is great. But at the end of the day, that's not what's important. It's about doing the right thing, choosing the right friend group, getting the right group of mentors and, and making a bunch of good decisions when it's a lot easier to make ones that
1: aren't very good. Right. And the and the dinner buffet at the end's pretty good as well. <laughs>
2: well we, you know, I I appreciate a good dinner buffet. That's a <laughs>
0: coach, that's a heck of a segue, because Eric, before you know, typically what we do at the end of these shows, we put our guests through a gauntlet of questions about Wesley and but before I get there, I've got a couple of Hartford-based questions for you that maybe okay. Mike doesn't know the answers to this, but I know you and I are gonna be simpatico about this one. So here here you go, Eric. Here's the question I have for you. What do you prefer Giant Grinder or most Midtown. Giant Grinder. I knew you were going without there. a doubt. Okay, favorite Hartford Whaler of all time. I
2: mean, it's got to be Gordy Howe, doesn't it? I mean, he's he's. How can it not be Gordy Howe?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's what a, do you like? My favorite Whaler of all time is Pepper Beak, but that's because you know we're we're about you know we're about ten years off, so it's a. You know, yeah, it
2: might, might be. A, yeah, might be the, it's a different realm,
0: you know, when you can walk into a shopping mall and end up going to a professional sporting event. People don't know what that I was kind of like.
2: A, I brought, a couple of times when I've been back in, in Hartford, I brought back some whaler gear, gear for my kids.
0: They have no idea, A, <laughs> a that there were, the fact that there was a professional sports team in Hartford, people just can't come to terms with, and B, it is still the single greatest logo in the history of professional sports, bar none. Do you, do you remember what was the theme song? Brass Bonanza, things? come on. I can, I'll, I'll edit it in afterwards for everyone okay. just in case they don't know, just in case they don't know. So, All right. All right you passed, you passed the Harper test. I knew you were going to go giant grinder, but I just had to throw it out there. Just well, I day.
2: went there so much more frequently.
0: Yeah, that's, that's fair. So coach, what we're going to do now, you know, this is our time. We got to do it. Eric, you've been so generous with your time, but we're going to put you through what we like to call the 60 second gauntlet. Coach and I are going to alternate questions based on your Wesleyan experience. We ask that you answer them as quickly and as expeditiously as possible. But just say the first thing that comes to your mind. Sound good? Not really, but okay. <laughs> well, you're already in too deep. Sounds, you're sounds in too horrible, deep. But okay. You're in too deep, man. You're in too deep. Coach, you want to lead us off?
1: I'll leave it off. We we, we go softball first, Eric. Okay, good. I like softball. Okay. Favorite professor at Wes. Oof!
2: I don't know who my favorite at <laughs> Wesleyan would be. I thought you were going to start with a softball question first.
0: Okay, we'll we'll change the question. Favorite When's head coach, that, coordinator, one? or a coaching assistant while on, on the football team at your time at Wesleyan? Uh,
2: well, I'm, uh, Frank Hauser probably be my my favorite.
0: Beautiful. Who is your most influ- Who is the most influential person in your life?
2: My entire life would probably be my brother Kyle um, for uh, for a lot of reasons. Lost my father at a very young age, and Kyle and I were always very close and then
1: you know he probably even filled more of that role after that and and uh, we we may have answered this question already, but what was your first job after graduating from WES? My first job was actually as a substitute
2: teacher. In Hartford, which I can say teachers don't get paid nearly enough money, substitute <laughs> teachers, it's not even close. That was as hard a job as I've ever had. All right.
0: Let me tell you my significant Teaching other.
2: kindergarten in Hartford was
0: work. My significant other to my right is smiling right now because she's a teacher in the Hartford area, so she knows exactly what you're talking about. If you were forced she, to cheer for one, lots. this is... All right, Eric, this is probably... This is the this is the do or die question right here. If you were forced okay. to cheer for one or the other, who would it be, Amherst or Williams?
2: It would be Amherst because my brother-in-law went to Amherst and um, uh, we beat him a lot when I was that last <laughs> <laughs> did not beat Williams, and so I'm still bitter about
1: that. All right. When you were five years old, what did you want to be when you grew up?
2: Oof. You know, I think I wanted to be a pro football player at five years old. Um, Yeah, I, I think that's it's just like my kids want to be pro football players now. My yeah. youngest does, but –
0: and genetics kick in. Yep, it happens. It happens to <laughs> the best of us. What's the best piece of advice you've received in your life? Um,
2: you make your living by what you get. You make your life by what you
1: give. Nice. In three words, describe your West experience.
2: Wow. Um. Life-changing experience. Like, um,
0: uh, yeah, that's th- that's three words. You got it. Life-changing experience. Yeah,
2: I didn't want to use experience
0: after he used experience. That's okay. <laughs> well, it's all right. Wesley never
2: liked when you repeat words um, within a couple so, sentences.
0: We don't judge.
2: But I was trying not to have the same you know, one.
0: We don't judge. What's the one thing you miss most about Wesley?
2: Um, I I would definitely miss the playing football for Westland. Uh, I think that was I love that experience. You know, I miss the the friendships that I built at Westland. Um, and you probably don't you never realize how special moments are in, are in your life until after you've moved on from the, those moments. But just that that whole time my life was 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 a pretty amazing time
1: what's the best wesleyan highlight from the last 20 years best wesleyan highlight what do you what do you mean mike Any, anything associated with wesleyan what's the what's the most positive thing in your mind with regard to what it could it be it could be a sports what? accomplishment it could be the hiccup know?
0: is coach that he I'd didn't say, he didn't get I'd to hear the
1: creation of hamilton there you go oh okay like
2: I like to me Hamilton, uh, I wish I was remotely as talented as as he is, and it's
1: incredible, incredible. Well, I, I think we know the answer to that next I was
0: going to say you may have inadvertently just killed our segue. <laughs> Who is the West <laughs> alum you'd most like to have dinner with, Eric Mangini?
2: Um. He probably killed
1: the Segway. <laughs> I think you know you who know, I'd probably like to have dinner with. Lin-Manuel. That's a, that's yeah. a pretty popular answer. That's a pretty I popular would imagine, answer.
2: yeah, he's, he's killing it. What are some other answers that come up besides Bill?
0: Coach Whalen. That's pretty much what it is. It's, it's basically <laughs> Lynn manuel Miranda... Uh, Coach Whalen, and, and then and then after that, people say Bill Belichick most yeah, of the time. Sure, yeah, sure, sure, sure.
2: Like yeah, a distant, right. distant third. But, yeah, Eric, yeah, sure, the, the real
0: yeah. problem is that we haven't Bob's interviewed. Better,
2: I'd like to have dinner
1: with him. There you go. There you go. We haven't Bob, interviewed. He's not a Wesleyan alumni, I don't think. but We're, we're going to give uh, him an honorary degree before it's all said. Yeah, done. he's he's one, one of the number ones in my heart. Yep, yep. Right.
0: Eric the real problem is that it's a very patriot centric show. We haven't interviewed any Jets fans on this show yet. So that's for the real reason. And I'm trying to turn it, you know, and it's happening, but it just we just haven't gotten there quite yet. In, in time, in time we're building, we're building. Uh,
2: how many years do you think that's going to take? Well,
0: I mean, I guess that depends on how many months people have, uh, but uh it's it's not going particularly well, but every day is a new day, Eric, and you know. Every, so every so Chris, I, I
1: you... You need to you need to give uh, Eric your statistic about the draft with offensive players and ask him for his take on it and because why okay. this has so, you so so perplexed.
0: Okay, so here's my thing, and I know no one listening probably cares about the Jets, Eric, but we're we're just gonna do it anyway. Um, so the entire time since you've left, which you know has been, uh, let's see, Rex Rex got the job after you, right? Right after you, I was oh uh, eight. Right. Yeah. So, so there have been two offensive players drafted in the first round by the Jets, and they've both been quarterbacks. And my question is how is it possible that an organization could go 12 years and only draft two offensive players in a league that is rapidly shifted to an offensive league? Well, who, who were
2: the head coaches after that? Weren't they all defensive they
0: were but there's general managers I mean there, there are plenty of opportunities there are plenty of guys that are passed up and I'm not going to second guess everyone knows how hard this is but you've got to draft some offensive players in order to win because it's it's real hard if you're just going to rely on free agents
2: I mean my first year we drafted Nick Mangold and the Brickshell Ferguson exactly
0: first exactly you guys did and that was the thing and that was the most boring draft day of my life but you know what Three years later, I was like, "That was the greatest draft of my life." Because Flavers,
2: what 12, 12 years each? Exactly, and that's what <laughs> that I'm was getting good at.
0: It's it's boring, but boring wins sometimes, you know. But I, I don't know. Leon, Leon Washington was
2: part of that draft. That's Brad right. Smith was part of that draft. That's right. Dustin Keller was the next year.
0: Yeah, Brad Smith, the original Swiss Army knife. That's right. Yeah, man, you, yeah, guys, had, you guys had you guys
1: had Revis. He was, the oh, he, was the he was pretty drafted. good.
0: He was pretty good.
1: Eric, so uh, one thing you you did you did pick up, and I, I meant to ask you this, but you you mentioned it during the gauntlet. Which, by the way, you survived fine. Good job. Okay, um, um, But um, you mentioned your your brother-in-law being an Amherst grad, and, and uh, um, he's also in professional sports. Correct. Well, I have a he actually David Shapiro. David, when okay, I went to Amherst, right. He was a
2: football he, player, right? He was a football player. The greatest the greatest thing about David is the best game that I ever played in my life was against David and, and I didn't even realize that. I had like three sacks, thirteen tackles and he was a freshman center <laughs> at Amherst nice. and I was a nose tackle. Sweet. we found out a bunch of years later after I started dating his sister who eventually became my wife, I had that tape. Uh, someone got me my senior year's video for like a, a present. So I was able to throw on the videotape. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Um, David actually runs um, a national mentoring program
1: uh, the, in the and, nonprofit and, world. And, and by the way, he, he, he went on to be a very good player because when I got to Williams, uh, he was he was older and had been a three- or four-year starter. And, and, and he was a uh, four-year
2: starter, really yeah, good player.
1: Yeah, I got him at really the right good. time.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I got, I got, now um, – Julie's other brother, Mark, is the president of Toronto the Blue okay. Jays. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's great. And and so we- her family was a very big sports family. I was like the uh, the unsuccessful one at Thanksgiving dinner. You know, <laughs> father was a big sports agent. Brother was running the Indians at the time. Yeah. You know, I was only head coach of a football team. So
0: it's <laughs> amazing. That's great. Eric, listen. You know, b- before we let you go, we we always like to ask everyone just you know one piece of advice that you give to current Wesleyan student athletes, and, and then you know take it take it for however you want to take it. I mean, we just want to know what you would tell current Wesleyan student athletes based on your your Wesleyan experience and your professional experience.
2: Uh, I'd say the piece of advice that I'd give is to to create opportunities. I, I think it's very easy. to to be frustrated with with a lack of opportunities and things aren't necessarily going to look exactly like you hope they look. It may not be your perfect job. It may not be your ideal situation, but really work hard to try to create opportunities for you either to learn, to get in the door and and to potentially grow And, and don't limit yourself by what your expectations of what something should look like. Go and go and create where where there may not be things there now.
1: And then along those lines, uh, Eric, just to, you know, is you know, as as I'm sure you know, and certainly as, as your children approach uh, college ages, um, you know, the the uh, the value of the liberal arts education is is something that's uh, always scrutinized, heavily scrutinized. And so I guess you know, uh, tell our listeners kind of what you know what you feel the liberal arts. Uh, uh, education did for you, you know, in in your professional life, both in football and and now in broadcasting.
2: One, one of the greatest things about the liberal arts education is it teaches you how to think. So you may not learn a specific trade, but you learn how to how to how to think and, and how to navigate through all the different situations that come up. You know, a place like Wesley is special too because you're going to get challenged. You're going to get challenged intellectually. You're going to get challenged in terms of what your belief systems are, but it's good to be challenged. It's good to have to, to identify the things that, that you believe in and, and to listen to a lot of other ideas and especially in the environment that we're in now politically tolerance and, and, and patience and, and critical thinking and being able to take a step back and, and look at the other side is more important now than, than it ever has been. Um, so I, I, value Wesleyan so much for doing that for me. And I also value it for creating a, a, a model where I can evaluate situations critically and, and, uh, it'll, it allowing me to, to, to think about it and, and, and make good decisions.
1: That's great. That's great. Perfect. I can't thank you enough, Eric. This has been great. Uh, hours just flew by and uh, really guys. appreciate it. And, uh, Again, wishing you all the best, and uh, uh, hopefully, when uh, this COVID time ends, uh, we can uh, we can get back together. And um, if if at all that camp starts to uh, come back, let us know, and we'll get our Wesleyan guys up there, and uh, we'll coach them up again.
2: That'd be fantastic. And I'm as soon as this thing breaks, I'm to bring all the boys up to Wesleyan, and hopefully, we can all get together and you know hang out for a little bit.
1: Love it, love it.
0: Well, coach, all right, I'm-
2: guys. So nice to meet you.
0: Eric, first and foremost, we want to thank you for spending time with us. For the coach, Mike Whalen, for producer Mike O'Brien, I'm Chris Grace. This is Chris and Coach Beyond the Box, where where people who are poor, hungry, and driven somehow get degrees that they didn't have beforehand. For everyone, I'd like to thank Eric Mangini for being so gracious with his time. Until next time, so long, everyone.